From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of Environmental Radio. I'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. As you listen to this week's story, we ask you to consider the different ways of knowing you can approach scientific information with. Do you take a Western scientific view of the world, or do you consider the diverse, local, and Indigenous knowledges that contribute to our understanding? We encourage you to explore how scientific and research institutions have been tools of Indigenous oppression, and what universities or other research institutions around you are doing to decolonize these systems. We all have a role to play in this relationship that is treaty. This episode, we talk about science communication with Kenneth Tam, Communications Associate with the Future Energy Systems at the University of Alberta. Kenneth and Tara and former Sonic Patel discuss the importance of sharing research, the innovative ways Future Energy Systems is trying to communicate their research, and some of the challenges Kenneth has faced in this project. Before we get to that, here are this week's headlines. A new study from the University of Manitoba provides another concern about the increasing amount of microplastics waste entering our oceans. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic, smaller than five millimeters. These particles can be created as larger pieces of plastic break down or from microbeads, which are small pieces of plastic often used in cosmetics products. It's estimated that between eight and 12 million tons of plastic is dumped in the ocean every year and this has disastrous impacts on the environment. Larger plastic waste products can be ingested by sea life, while microplastics can be eaten and accumulate in sea animals. Now, plastic waste takes years to degrade, and there's an estimated 5.25 trillion pieces of microplastic in the ocean right now, with an estimated 8 to 41 particles per liter. Microplastics and their impact on the environment are still being researched. The University of Manitoba paper focuses on impacts in the Arctic. Now, Arctic waters are seeing increased concentrations of microplastic, which are brought in by currents, increased freshwater input, and more shipping and resource extraction in the north. A key ecosystem component of the Arctic is sea ice, frozen ocean water that forms over winter. Sea ice increases the salinity of the water beneath it, uh, or how salty it is, And this affects ocean circulation patterns, which are crucial for the ocean ecosystem, as mixing of these waters brings nutrients to the surface. Now, sea ice also reduces erosion of Arctic coasts and reduces evaporation and heat loss in the area by reducing how much wind and waves can deteriorate the coast. Sea ice is also a habitat for important Arctic species, like polar bears, seals, and Arctic foxes. Sea ice also has an important role because of its high albedo, Sea ice reflects more sunlight back into space than dark ocean water. And this creates a positive feedback loop 
where as the climate gets warmer, the less sea ice forms and the faster the Earth heats because less heat is reflected back to space. Because the Earth is warmer, less sea ice is formed, continuing the cycle. As more microplastics are being absorbed into sea ice, the albedo effect of sea ice is impacted. Uh, the buoyancy of plastic particles means they get trapped in the sea ice that forms at the surface, changing the albedo of sea ice formed. While the current concentration of microplastic particles in Arctic waters is not high enough to change albedo, increases in microplastic concentration could have substantial impacts. If albedo changes, the Arctic could lose more sea ice, drastically threatening the Arctic and ocean ecosystems. This study and ongoing efforts to study microplastic illustrate the importance of addressing our plastic pollution and ocean waste dumping. Failure to address these problems presents a threat to sensitive ecosystems like the Arctic and increases the challenge of reducing climate change. So you might consider what I just did there in the headlines a bit of science communication. With the help of the Terra Informa team, we paraphrased and shared an important piece of research being done on microplastics. As an audience, you may or may not have access to journal articles and scientific research in its most common forms, but through the news and other media, we can share some of the research priorities and discoveries of the scientific community. And this kind of information sharing is what our main story is all about this week. Let's listen as Terra Informer Sonic Patel sits down with Kenneth Tam to discuss how to share scientific research and why it's important to do so. In 2016, the Future Energy Systems Research Initiative was launched, funded by $75 million from the federal government's Canada First Research Excellent Fund. Future Energy Systems encompasses 83 projects across a variety of disciplines, focusing on developing energy technology, integrating them into our existing infrastructure, and what that means for Canadians and our economy and environment. Future Energy Systems employs hundreds of researchers, including myself, Sonic Patel. I'm joined by Kenneth Tam, Communications Associate for Future Energy Systems, to talk about his experience with science communication. How are you doing, Kenneth? I'm not too bad, Sonic. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. I guess to start, I just had a few questions about you and, and your background. Um, so how did you find your way to Future Energy Systems? It's been sort of an interesting road. I've been working in communication since I was an undergrad student. It started for me, actually, my first job in communications was the summer before my first year of university at Wilfrid Laurier back in Ontario. I joined the communications team for our varsity sports teams. And so was doing a lot of the work for, um, you know, game day programs and all that sort of thing. And so I was doing communications all the way along through my studies. And then when I graduated, my, my studies are in history. So I did a BA and then an MA. And when I graduated and I was looking for work, a friend of mine uh, put me in touch with a no chance candidate for the House of Commons federal politics who just needed some help. There was no chance he was going to win. And then we actually won that race by 17 votes. So I ended up doing communications for him for a couple of years. and got to learn a fair bit about communications in the political world. But uh, being in that area in Kitchener-Waterloo, we were there where the University of Waterloo is, where Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics is, Institute for Quantum Computing. So, so much of what we did was actually related to research uh, that I really got a taste for it. And so 
few years down the road, I spent some time in the financial sector, and then I came to the University of Alberta to a different research institute to do research communications. And then, as you said, Future Energy Systems launched in 2016 and uh, was got funding in 2016, launched in 2017. And so I came across to do communications there. Our Canadian listeners and prolific readers will recognize you from your science fiction um, work in the past. Is that a fun transition going from writing science fiction to, I guess, science near future or science fact? It is. Well, I mean, it's definitely two different things, but it's incredibly helpful to have sort of the experience developing science fiction stories and figuring out what that readership is, is looking for and what they respond to and then changing the source material to something that's real and then trying to use the same tools to make research, which a lot of people think could be dull or boring, but to try and turn that into stories that people are going to be interested in reading. And it's not hard because the researchers are incredible. So I just try and use the toolkit from writing fiction to write real stories. And obviously we don't make anything up with future energy systems. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing to make clear. Um, But it is you know, the tools of writing fiction, how do you construct a story, how do you make sure that people understand, or that readers understand the people you're writing about, those are important tools that we definitely use in both places. This is my first experience with Research Initiative, and I was a little bit surprised when I heard that they had a communications, um, I guess, group that focuses on that. So why do you think communications is important for research projects or initiatives to have? It's especially in, I I think what's happened in recent times is people have realized that you absolutely need to, first of all, focus on having good science, good research. Whatever your discipline is, whether you're in the natural sciences, the social sciences, the humanities, you absolutely need to focus on the quality of that research, make sure it's done correctly, ethically, rigorously, all of those things are vital. Um, But what especially we're finding now in the age of social media, where you've got so many people who just because they can write 120 or 240 characters um, that sound pretty convincing. You don't want the world just just listening to those people who might have an agenda, might just not know, uh, might not have the information on hand. But so much of what's being out there in the discourse right now, so much of what's going on in politics right now, seems to be really deeply informed by those sorts of experts who aren't necessarily hands-on with the latest science, with the latest research, whatever it might be. And so the role that the communications teams in these research programs are playing is to try and take the research that's getting published in journals, that's getting presented at conferences, and then also hopefully turn it into a format where it's digestible by an audience who isn't going to conferences, isn't reading journals, probably has no interest in it. Um, But this research is deeply going to affect their lives. And so where this research communication piece, science communication piece has really been picking up steam in the last decade, I'd say, is as people realize that there's an audience out there in the public who want to know this stuff, but don't have, you know, a PhD behind them. And so they need somebody in between to just try and help bridge that gap as much as possible. So you've mentioned that the kind of way that we implement science is is changing. Are you seeing some resistance from the researchers who are concerned that their work is being politicized as they're doing their, their projects? So short answer is not really, um, but it's interesting because that was one of the first concerns I came in with. I remember back in the days when I was uh, I was working in for the member of parliament and we'd turn up in people's labs again at the University of Waterloo or at Wilfrid Laurier University. And I would always sense a certain concern that we were going to come in and pluck one soundbite and then declare that this is what the research is all about. And this is a person's career's work. And you don't want to be that person who shows up and says, oh, I'm 
I've been talking to you for half an hour and now I can tell you exactly what your work is. Um, but what I've really found uh, when I've been working with researchers in future energy systems is there is such an appetite among everybody, first of all, to be open-minded to the fact that their own discipline may not have all of the answers, you know, whether they're an engineer or a scientist or an economist or a, an English and film studies professor or an anthropologist, everybody's looking at it going, I have part of the picture, but I don't have all of the picture. So first of all, I've noticed they're very open-minded to working with each other. But then they've basically seen the communicators coming in, provided we come in correctly and that we're doing things the way we should be doing them as a as a helpful ally in trying to get access to those other you know, systems of knowledge or to those other people and also to the public at large. And part of that is their open mindedness and part of that is us doing our job properly, which is to say not showing up and saying, OK, I'm going to turn your work into a, you know, into a hundred word soundbite and this is all it is. We've got to take the time to understand what they're working on and to be very respectful about communicating it properly. What kind of things is Future Energy Systems doing to share research and communicate that, you know, beyond the realms of academia to the public and stakeholders? We've got a variety of things that we do, mainly two broad streams. One is sort of outreach and engagement. So we try and get our researchers either out of their labs and into, say, public libraries or chambers of commerce or any sorts of science centers, all those sorts of areas. Um, to do engagement activities, and that can either be graduate students who are doing it or the researchers who are professors as well. So that outreach stream is one that we're continuing to build up. And then on the other side, we're, we're doing a lot of story writing because we find stories have a lot of legs. What we do is we work with the researchers to capture as much as we can the entirety of their, their research project with us in a good story. But then we don't just, I mean, we post it to our website and we do all those normal things. But we also try and promote that story to other audiences or to other outlets, both at the University of Alberta and beyond, where they don't necessarily want to take the whole story, but because they've read the whole story, they understand it better, and then they can communicate a part of that story more effectively. So, for instance, if it's something like our machine learning researchers um, who are working in um, our chemistry machine learning work researchers who are working in solar technology, they're working together with machine learning researchers who are doing carbon capture and storage or who are doing genetic engineering of bacteria. Like we've got all sorts of different projects. We write that story at a high level and then we also pitch it to different outlets who might take a particular piece of that story. But getting back to your earlier question about how do we make sure that we're we're not just, you know, taking away a, or taking a slice out of a story that the researchers aren't comfortable with, because those other outlets have now seen the whole story and maybe they can't use the whole story, they do have more understanding of when they're taking a slice out for their own audience, how to do so without disregarding the context or without eliminating or, or sort of oversimplifying the research. So the, the role that we play is very much being that first step that gets it from the journal of the conference into a publicly accessible format. And then from there, others who have specific public audiences, they can take it and refine it as much as they need. Um, so in, in the course of your work with science communications, what do you think are the largest challenges that we're facing when we're trying to communicate our research? I think it's just the sheer amount of communication that's happening, quite frankly. 
So, I mean, the challenges of research communication when we're doing it is it's, you know, it's always solving a puzzle. You talk to the researcher, you try and figure out how do you take a discipline that can be so complex and so impenetrable in some cases and make it accessible. And so there's all sorts of techniques you can use. You're using analogies, you're making the stories about people. These are all just the tools of the trade. But no matter how good a job you do, the challenge is how do you get that story out there in such a way that it's competing with the other, you know, stories that are being communicated on Twitter or on Facebook, which may not be based on the same level of research that the stories we're working on are. And that's really the challenge where no individual communicator, no individual communications team can do it by themselves. It really is about building an ecosystem of, of trust where you are providing expertise to other communications people, to the media, and over time, gradually, the entire narrative is starting to get out there. Uh, but there's no sort of silver bullet where I'm going to write this story and write this tweet, and then suddenly everybody's going to know the latest and greatest about solar energy or wind energy or something like that. It's a slow-moving process of sort of an iterative process of get a little bit more out there, build up some more trust, keep things moving along. Right. Are you often challenged by this idea of having to build narratives out of research that is, you know, sometimes more empirical, sometimes, you know, more based in, in hard science? And how do you build that story out of something like developing a Stirling engine, which is a very mechanical and engineering-heavy process? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I geek out on those sorts of things. It's, it's always, to me, I walk into a lab like that, and it's like you're in the engine room on the Enterprise in Star Trek, and you're, they're developing a solution to a problem. It takes a lot longer than 40 minutes, unfortunately. But um, the way you try and tackle those stories, typically, is you make them about the people who are doing the research. And those stories... Uh, people tend to, or the public tends to respond to stories about people in general. And if you can give them a, a look behind the curtain at what it is really like to do this kind of research, whether it is a mechanical engineer developing an engine and getting it to turn over and, you know, you've got grad students designing things and 3D printing things and building them and they don't work. So they go back to the design phase and they build new things and suddenly it works. I mean, that's an interesting process. Down the line, you know, if one of them was super successful, you could you could make a movie out of that. It might not be a particularly a blockbuster, but there's definitely a compelling story there. Mm -hmm. And that goes whether you're talking about mechanical engineering, whether you're talking about the social sciences. I mean, talking about researchers who are going out and doing qualitative interviews in communities. What stories are they finding? What are they experiencing when they fly into a community? Always making it about the people who are doing the research and exploring their motivations, why they're doing it. Not only does it make it an accessible narrative, but it also qualifies why a reader is reading that story. Because one of the questions we always have to deal with, if you just present facts without context, anybody can shrug and go, well, you've got your facts and I've got my facts. But if you're telling the story of the person who's gathering that data and why they're gathering that data, it makes it a lot more compelling and it takes away some of those questions about, well, can I trust this person? Because mm -hmm. if you're following them from start to finish in the process, you realize what's what's going on. and and you're more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt when they say, look, you need to pay attention to this. Um, do you see, are you experiencing any political challenges from people that, um, say, are, that are denying climate science or from people that um, are, think it's a challenge to our economic systems? I think, so personally, no, and it's been quite gratifying that I think our audience is a lot of open-minded people. Um, I also think that we're very fortunate to be in Canada, frankly. I, I know that the obviously on social media and online borders don't matter so much when it comes to some of these debates, but I think being a Canadian institution, publicly funded, it's there's an expectation that researchers are here to 
follow the data, to follow their own convictions and to actually dig into these issues. Moreover, I think it's pretty clear that wherever you land on the political spectrum in Canada, there is a concern about our climate and people can have their debates about you know, exactly what factors are contributing to climate change, but it, energy doesn't even necessarily need to hinge on that question of whether or not you believe in climate change or not. There are so many aspects to changing energy system from energy independence. I mean, you look at the benefits of decentralized renewable energy for communities. I mean, those communities in rural Canada say the impact of climate change, you know, there's maybe 300 people there. Whatever they do may not affect climate ultimately. But if you can give them an opportunity to generate their own power separate from the grid that gives them ownership of it, you're talking about changing their way of life. And so there's so many questions beyond just carbon emissions and the climate related to energy. And I think people are genuinely interested in what could possibly come next with those changes. And that's something that we like to do because we don't want it to just to be a one note conversation. Energy systems have such a profound impact on our society that there's a lot of different engage or conversations that we need to engage in yeah i think on on my end doing social research that's kind of where i feel like i fit in taking these kind of technologies and moving them to a realistic implementation stage mm-hmm. um and from the communications perspective what it's what is it like translating these sometimes sometimes abstract technologies or ideas and telling people what kind of tangible impact that will have on them it's fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it sort of comes back to you start with the people who you're writing about uh, or whose story you're telling. I, if I could get everybody in the world, or at least everybody in Canada, to just show up here and spend half a day with any of our researchers, it would just, I think, shed light on what's going on. When, uh, you know, when they read headlines or they read stories or they hear people in conversation saying, scientists say this or research says that, they're often hearing about research in the context of an argument that they're already participating in. And what I really enjoy is showing people what researchers are really like. And researchers, in my experience, at least here at the University of Alberta, and particularly in future energy systems, are wildly open-minded people. They're always willing to acknowledge what they know, what they don't know, and how they want to cross the gap between those two things. And they're having conversations with them is so fascinating because they're always out there collecting information and looking at it in different ways. And they're always surrounded by people who are asking questions and challenging. And and that's not what I think the public expects researchers are like. They think the decision is made before the research started and you're just adding more evidence to the pile. It's not how it happens. And so to back to your question of what it's like telling those stories, it's it's so much fun because no matter whether you're talking about power quality issues in smart grids or whether you're talking about community-based research and you know finding justice in community energy projects, vastly different subjects, but everybody can relate to them in some way if you tell the story properly. And fundamentally, I want them to understand, them being the audience, that the people do, uh, searching or researching these questions are like the rest of us. They're reading the same headlines the rest of us are. They're concerned about the same things. They just happen to be fortunate to be in a position where they've got access to this data, access to the time they need to really study it. And that's, I mean, it's a really, for our society, it's really beneficial that we've got people asking those questions and asking them, I think, in the right way. Great. I guess uh, let's let's go back to this idea of a narrative. And maybe 
Do you feel comfortable sharing your best experience working with FES for science communication? So it's been fascinating because we cross the University of Alberta as a uh, has an, a number of different faculties, and we've got engagements with eight of them. Um, but we've got engineers, scientists, we've got social scientists in the humanities. And so what I guess the best thing for me is that on any given day, what I'll do is I'll, you know, go in in the morning, check my email, do all the admin stuff. And if I find I've got a couple of hours without a meeting, I just leave my office and start walking between different labs. And I'll go from, you know, the engineering buildings to the science buildings, maybe over into the agricultural life and, or, and environmental sciences buildings, so ALES as we call it here, which is agriculture, forestry, community-based research. And I'll just sort of see who's in their office or who's in their lab and stop by. And I mean, the first few times I do that, it's like, what's this guy doing here? But after I show up enough and they realize I'm mostly harmless, then mm -hmm. I can stop by and find out what's going on. And and as I've had the chance to build up those relationships with our researchers, it's been just so fantastic. I mean, just an example from last Friday, I did this in the afternoon. It's a Friday afternoon in September. And I, you know, I've got a clear afternoon. So I'm like, okay, I'll go walk around, check out what's going on. Stop by one researcher's office, finding out that he's working on an industrial research chair application, how that's going, go to the elevator, bump into another researcher, follow him back to his lab to see how the Sterling engines are doing. Mm -hmm. Then I'm popping by another floor, and as I'm coming off the elevator, one of the researchers I know grabs me and says, oh, we've got a 3MT con competition going on. Why don't you come to this? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know about it. I'll come along. And so over the course of the afternoon, I got to interact with three researchers, a lot of graduate students, and just got to see what was going on. And as I'm doing all of this, I'm seeing these different stories that are happening. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to write all of these stories. So it's just there's so much happening here. And to be the communications person, I'm privileged to have this access to all of these different researchers. And they're willing to give me some time and tell me what's going on. And I'm so grateful for that. And so then when it comes to telling stories, it's just, you know, you've got you can have one student who's working on the economics of using abandoned oil wells for geothermal and then you turn around and you're talking about to somebody who's working on catalysts for solar cells and then somebody who's genetically engineering bacteria or an economist who's working on what the economics of this whole thing would look like it's just there's too many stories yeah. and it's just i feel like a kid in a candy store every day mm -hmm. I guess for context for our listeners, Future Energy Systems, I believe, is still the largest research initiative the university has ever had. Um, so, yeah, 83 projects across a variety of disciplines. 127 researchers, 506 graduate students as of now, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. It's a big program. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that uh, you're interested in? Thanks so much for your time and answering these questions. No, I'm, I just, I'm happy to do it. I think science communication, my sense is, is going to continue to be a growth sector uh, for quite a while. I know a lot of communicators, being in the communications field, I always say is sort of like saying that you're a driver professionally. And, you know, if you say, oh, I'm a driver, and then somebody goes, well, what do you drive? That's where the real question is. Do you drive a limo or do you drive a tank or do you drive a truck? Or <laughs> So in communications, there's all sorts of different communicators. There's people who focus on, you know, media relations. There's people who focus on um, corporate communications, internal communications. Research communications is its own specific thing, and there's no sort of set way to get into it. Um, but I think if you're interested in telling stories about researchers, there's so much research going on just in this university and I'm sure in all universities across Canada and, and, and around the world. 
So if it's something that you think is important, you like telling stories, you you like telling fictional stories, and you're not sure how to what to do with that skill set. Um, always keep an eye out for those positions in post-secondary institutions where you can use those skills to try and help people who are doing the good work and want to get it out there, get it out there, because we need to let the public know what's going on. It's some pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're interested in Future Energy Systems, you can visit the webpage, futureenergysystems.ca, where you can see a wealth of resources and research. Um, you can also follow Future Energy Systems on Facebook. Yeah. And on our website, you'll also find a map of renewable energy projects that our host here has helped put together, as well as some reports that he mm -hmm. helped write, which are pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. If you're interested in hiring me, you can email me at Sonic. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if that stays in the interview. <laughs> This has been Sonic Patel, joined by Kenneth Ham. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks. That was Kenneth Tam with Future Energy Systems, a University of Alberta research group. And that's all the time we have this week. If you have questions or comments about our show, send us an email to tara at cjsr.com, tweet us at Tara Informa, find us on Facebook, or visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteers, Sonic Patel, Hannah Cunningham, and Carter Gorzitza for creating this week's episode. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM. Consider a donation to your local radio station to keep stories like this on the air. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for tuning in, and catch us next week right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>